Welcome to Blackbird, episode number 91. My name is James, and today I am joined once again by Thad Russell. Thad, thanks for joining me again. Always, my friend. Always and anytime. Love this. Let's go. Really? All right, cool. I'll see you in a week. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, uh, actually, I've got Mark Changizi coming on next week, who uh, I think he was mentioned on... No, he was mentioned on Tom's show, not yours. But uh, yeah, he's a, he's been really great on COVID. You'd probably like to interview him. Okay. If you want to keep dwelling on COVID. But anyway, I wanted to talk to you. So you're like number four in my four-part series on Renegade University, which uh, I'd love to know what the hell happened there. Yeah. I mean, unless you want to redo your bio, which I think pretty much everybody watching has some familiarity with who you are, so we can probably just jump into it. Yeah, no, actually, this is great. Perfect timing. I can now announce, finally, that um, I am formally separating from Renegade University. I will no longer be a member of that company. I will no longer be producing any content for RU. I will no longer have anything to do with RU. So I'm now fully on Patreon, and everyone should go to patreon.com slash unregistered where we have bonus episodes of the show. You get access to my shows on Thursday nights. And now we're about to start teaching courses on Patreon. So through, probably through a subscription model, you'll be able to take all of my courses there, um, which will be a great deal for everyone. And um, a new age has begun. Yeah, nice. So are you still going to be kind of shipping in instructors and stuff like that? Or is it going to be you teaching? Yes, indeed. In fact, I just signed up Scott Ritter to teach a course on the history of NATO. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. So he was on your show recently, right? Yeah, he's huge right now. What's his kind of claim to fame? Well, he was the guy who exposed the lie of WMDs in Iraq. He was the weapons inspector in the, in yeah. the 90s and early 2000s who became infamous in the foreign policy establishment for repeatedly saying that Saddam did not, in fact, have weapons of mass destruction. And he was pilloried by none other than Joe Biden. Everyone should go look at... <laughs> A video of Joe Biden just insulting Scott Ritter in congressional in a congressional hearing. Uh, just just Google Joe Biden Scott Ritter. You'll see that come up. It's uh, pretty remarkable how arrogant Joe Biden was. I mean, this was about WMDs, and he was making fun of Scott Ritter for saying that the weapons did not exist. And now, of course, we know what the deal is. And yet another feather in the cap for Joe Biden's illustrious career. He's pretty much done nothing right in fifty years. Yeah, I mean, he has been there for longer than I've been alive, and literally every move, every step of the way, he's been on the wrong side of everything. You can't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a worse politician in my lifetime. How does someone like that continue climbing the ladder? I mean, how did, how the hell did that guy become president? He's a great glad hander, and he's just a professional politician, and he built a little um, mm-hmm. fiefdom in Delaware, which also has a, you know, if you, I, my imagine is controlling Delaware is not as hard as controlling a state like California, um, but it's still difficult. I don't know exactly sure. how he did it, but I mean, he just basically worked machine politics in the seventies, and by the time the eighties rolled around, and I was actually on Capitol Hill in nineteen eighty, uh, nineteen eighty eight, and I saw Joe Biden walking around. Oh, really? Doing his thing. I was an intern for the Associated Press, and it gave me access to. I got inside all the rooms in the in the Capitol building. That was where I worked was the Capitol building, and I so I was taking elevators with all these fuckers and. Uh. Yeah, uh, and Biden was just, a, I remember watching him conduct this little meeting with a bunch of reporters, and I just remember thinking, God, this guy's a real operator. Like, he's really trying to, like, 
move things. He's really a hustler. He's a hustler. And I think that's it. I think hard work mm-hmm. pays off. He's obviously never been the, the brightest of the Congress people. Um, and then also what's amazing is that in terms of policy, and this is what I don't understand, and I guess this is your question, he has consistently voted against the interests of the left. Consistently. The stated interests of the left. There is not, I don't think, one major issue on which Joe Biden didn't essentially take the side of right-wingers in the Republican Party or just uh, fascism, you know, like the, like the crime bill of 1994, which yeah. is, that was supported by the Republicans, but it was mostly supported by the Congressional Black Caucus. So yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And he was the main cheerleader for the Iraq War in 2003 as the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And it just one after the other after the other. And of course, as president, I, uh, it's just, as we all know, it's been just a rolling catastrophe since January, since last mm-hmm. January. Has he always been a, as good at virtue signaling as, I mean, I guess it's not, he's not good at it, but has he always virtue signaled the way he does now? Well, you know, he, he's a chameleon. So in the nineties, he was, he was virtue signaling mm-hmm. by calling for law and order. You know, that was the big thing in the nineties. The Clintons, people forget this. Yeah. <clears throat> the Clintons were also very much behind the crime bill and the lock, the lock them up mantra of the nineties. And so he was riding that way. That's when it, it was virtuous at that time to be for mass incarceration. So that's why he gave lots of speeches mm-hmm. on the Senate floor talking about how great his bill was in that it was going to lock up people for life. Nonviolent drug offenders. By the way, I currently... I remember that. By the well, way, I, mean, I, don't, I don't remember it. I was little, but I, I've seen it. Yeah, and by the way, I right now have two very good friends who are going to prison for nonviolent drug offenses. One for cannabis mm-hmm. and one for ecstasy. Uh, and they're both facing multiple... One is... Dan is... Everyone knows Dan Music is going to prison for five years on May 11th for cannabis distribution, no violence whatsoever in his record. And then I have another friend, one of my best friends here is going to probably going to prison for distribution of ecstasy, uh, also nonviolent. So these things are really personal the, for me now. Is that the result of the still in force Biden crime bill? Complete, I'm sorry. Yes. Those were entirely because of Joe yep. Biden's mandatory minimum sentences for drug dealing. Yep. Wow. Yep. Um, mandatory minimums. Why do you think progressives love mandatory minimums so much? Is it for the same reason that they love trains so much? They just like to have a standardized thing? It's a great question. I mean, I think it's because, yeah, it's standardization and centralization, and they don't like individuals yeah. to have discretion, even judges, right? They don't want any individual mm-hmm. to have discretion. They're interested in systems and the collective and managing large masses of people. And so centralization and standardization is necessary, you know, for any, and especially in a country this size, if you want to, if you want to centralize and standardize anything, in a country of 350 million, you know, super diverse people, you're going to have to standardize and centralize nonstop. This is why the neocons and the progressive liberals have always been on the same side on this. This is why they both supported No Child Left Behind, yeah. you know, the centralization of the curricula and all the schools. Yeah, it's a big deal. And people kind of miss, uh, they underestimate it. I mean, conservatives understand this. They, they call this out. They know what's going on here. But the big sort of liberal mass of Americans don't get it. They think it's all good for the government to, the federal government to maintain or extend its power. All right. Well, let's, so this is week four of RU month. So, uh, (laughs) so I do want to, I do want to get into some of your, some of your work as an instructor at RU, even if, uh, even if it's, you know, going to be transitioning over to your unregistered Patreon, which is, which is great. I'm, I'm a member of your Patreon, by the way, I can totally vouch for it. So. I guess I just want to start. How do you how do you describe the job of a historian? Like, what is what is hmm. it? Prim, what's primarily a historian supposed to do? 
we are supposed to explain, or I should say, we, sh we are supposed to describe and explain, if we're good, explain change over time. Mm. So historians, professional historians, almost universally believe that nothing is static and everything is historical, meaning that everything is historically contingent. So in a sense, every professional historian is a postmodernist in that way. We are trained, I mean, even the, yeah. very, even the very like mainstream liberal historians and conservatives ones all look down on what's called trans-historicism, meaning the belief in trans-historical phenomena, things that, things that travel through history independent of human consciousness, right? Things that act like a god or act like nature. So the people on the left, mm. they tend to be trans-historical about racism. That's their big one, right? They believe that racism is this independent entity that floats above us and floats all around us. It doesn't matter whether we live or die or what we say or do, there will always be this racism in American culture and in the minds of white people, right? That's this trans-historical idea. That's obviously nonsense. You know, race and ideas about race and racism come and go, they ebb and flow, they change constantly. And so that's the kind of thing that historians really go after. We don't like any any claims of anything being static or trans-historical like that. So we, our job is always to find why change is happening, to show how it's happening, mm. and to then explain why it's happening. So what about the kind of, I mean, it's really popular right now, especially on the right, the, uh, the idea that history is kind of cyclical, uh, like the fourth turning narrative, for instance. Do you reject the idea that just cultural forces are kind of inevit inevitable, or is it more that you kind of ignore the fact that that's going on because you're you're more looking at the details rather than the rather than the the big picture? I mean, I think that everything is cultural. So I'm I'm a Hegelian in that sense. I believe that mm -hmm. ideas and culture are what make history. I think that ideas and culture are what make laws. Andrew Breitbart's famous formulation of law and politics being downstream from culture, I think is correct, completely right. Yeah. So no, I'm a cultural historian primarily, although that means that I talk about things like NATO and the Federal Reserve. I just do it through a cultural mm -hmm. lens, right? So things like NATO and the, and the Federal Reserve, people think, what does that have to do with cultural politics? It has everything to do with cultural politics. Those things wouldn't exist if there wasn't a broad culture supporting their existence. So most Americans are unaware of those things existing or know very little about it. So they give it a tacit, their tacit consent there's no opposition to NATO and the Federal Reserve. Um, and then all the insiders, the experts, those who have created the Federal Reserve and NATO, they're big supporters. And so it's the ideas, it's the culture of mm. those institutions, the culture that supports those institutions that make them possible and that keep them alive. So just to end NATO, if we want to end NATO, which is you now everyone's talking about NATO these days, you know, you have to change people's minds about it. It's about changing ordinary Americans' minds. Like, mm -hmm. let them know what Article 5 says. Let them know that if Estonia is attacked by Russia, we are contractually obligated to attack Russia and get into World War III. The vast majority of Americans have no clue about that. And so that's just, we've got to let them know and then say, hey, do you want that arrangement? Do you want it to be that, that way? Do you want us to be on the hook for anything that happens to Estonia? Do you want to go to World War III if, if the Baltic states are attacked or, you know? And that's when you change. And then once you get people changing their minds about these things, law changes in response to it. That seems very mm -hmm. obvious to me. Even in, a, even in an autocracy that happens in Putin's Russia, if most Russians decide that they don't like Putin and they don't like the war in Ukraine, Putin's gone. It's just that he happens to be very popular. And so it's, you know, it's that culture that, that creates everything legal and political. 
So what about though, like the constructions that, I mean, it's this view that like, there's these certain archetypes that sort of shape the culture, which then shapes the politics. So like, you know, the tribal chieftain wins a war. And so this warrior is now the shaper of culture, but he's dumb. So his advisors eventually become the shapers of culture, but advisors don't make money. They're typically a priestly caste in, you know, historical or traditional societies. So they need money men. Uh, So then eventually the money men supplant the advisors or the priests as the manufacturers of culture. And then it just keeps going and going and going like that. There's a fourth one and I don't remember what it is, but uh, I I think you get the point. Is that sort of meta-narrative frowned upon by all historians, most historians, just you? Or do you even frown on it? The meta-narrative that the money people end up determining culture? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, so they do, but then, but then eventually they get supplanted by like a, like a, like a, um, the yeoman caste, basically, the, the, the people living in poverty until those yeoman have a new tribal chieftain who wins a war on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Then he gets in charge and then it just keeps repeating over and over again. Mm -hmm. His advisors take charge and then their funders take charge. Uh, and then the funders get too big for their britches and the, the poor people replace the yeoman as the, the shapers of culture. I think this is what you're getting at. So how much did CNN just spend on CNN Plus? How much did they spend? $300 million. $300 million? $300 million, and it folded in five weeks. Is that right? Yeah. Five weeks. Okay, so one of the most powerful, arguably the most powerful corporation on Earth, you could argue that CNN is more powerful than Google because CNN controls the minds of half the population. Certainly Mm -hmm. one of the most powerful, right? With all of the marketing power you could ever ask for, can you imagine owning CNN and wanting to market a product? Holy Christ. I mean, you have the most powerful marketing vehicle in history, and yet it failed completely. The wealthiest people, Jeff Zucker and the board of CNN, whatever it is, right? We're talking about the wealthiest, most powerful people on earth, and they could not convince Americans to watch their stupid product. That tells me that the money money people don't really determine culture, that it actually comes from the bottom up. Well, I have a feeling, though, that we're at the end of that particular phase in this in this in the cycle like Jeff Tucker on your on your show on one of the seminars um that you republished he called it a pre-paradigmatic mm-hmm. post-pandemic era or whatever um basically that we're in this kind of liminal space where we're 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 moving from from one era to another and so the moneyed people are kind of losing their power and now the uh now the yeah. the next kind of natural Part in that cycle is that the is that the the um, I don't know the proletariat I guess are going to be the ones who are now shaping culture. That's right. That's right. The proletariat have risen, and you know how they've risen. They've risen through Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. So when Citizens United uh-huh. happened, of course, everybody on the le- everybody on the left was saying, "Oh gosh, this means that only wealthy people will be able to run for president." Only independently wealthy people, only yep. people with big donors, the big donors will be able to run for president. Only those with corporate backing will be president, right? Exactly the opposite happened. Trump, you know, he didn't get any corporate backing. Wall Street shunned him. Bernie got no corporate backing. His campaign was financed entirely from the grassroots by people giving five or 10 or $20. And those are the two most powerful and ascendant politicians in America. So again, <clears throat> money doesn't guarantee success, and it certainly doesn't necessarily determine culture. You have to give the people what they want. 
And once you give them what they want, if you keep giving them what they want, they will be loyal to you like they are with CNN. But if you veer from giving them what they want, they will reject you and dump you almost immediately. Consumers are notoriously fickle. And this is a good thing. It keeps capitalists and those in power on their toes. It's called consumer sovereignty, this concept of consumers holding all the power. That seems kind of capitalist. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I texted you a while back and asked if you described yourself as a revisionist historian. Mm -hmm. And you said all historians are revisionists. If they're not, they're just, they're just chroniclers. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the term re revisionist history. What does it mean? It's a history that revises the existing history just a revision of the existing history. Mm -hmm. So if you make any changes to the existing narrative, then you are revisionist. So again, like unless you are simply copying the arguments of previous historians, which some people do, everyone's a revisionist. Now, it just depends on how revisionist you want to be. And I tend to be more revisionist than most. Right. And, you know, you might call me a radical revisionist because I'm, I'm revising not just the details of the American narrative, but I'm revising really the way I'm attempting to revise just the way we think about it, the very framework with mm -hmm. which we view it. So I'm, I'm basically viewing American history and politics generally through a sort of Freudian lens, you know, of the battle between civilization and its discontents, you know, those who seek to maintain the moral order on the one hand, you know, and on the other hand, the renegades, the people who are breaking the moral order, violating norms. And that includes all sorts of people from prostitutes in the 19th century to Donald Trump today. That's a constant battle that's been mm -hmm. going on since the founding of the country. And so I just look at it through that and I see a whole different narrative. I see a whole different dynamic, a different tension in American history. This long cultural civil war that I think has been central always and has determined things in politics, things in the law, it's things in the media. That battle between the moral guardians of order and the renegades, once I started to look at it that way, you know, people saw, saw American history and politics generally very different. So that's a radical revision of the traditional narrative. What, like, what emotions do you experience when you think of the historical renegades? Oh. And does that differ from the emotions that you feel when you think about like Donald Trump or <laughs> uh, a more modern day no, renegade? No, Trump is a pretty good, I mean, he's pretty, he's a good renegade for the most part. Um, you know, he's violating a bunch of norms and he's doing so without any shame. Uh -huh. that's really the definition of the people that I'm talking about in my book. It's when they do it shamelessly yeah. and sort of effortlessly. They do it just in the way that they live their lives day to day. Those are the most powerful and radical and dangerous people in any society. Those who just get up and do something they're not supposed to do, you know? And whether it's tweeting, tweeting intemperate things as Trump did, or it's selling sex if you're a woman, you know, in the 19th century, or it's selling liquor in the 1920s. You know, those are all renegade actions because they are, they are simply, they are, they are uninterested in the norms, in the rules, in the codes of conduct, right? That's what, that's what makes people crazy about Trump is that he doesn't care that he's breaking the rules, that he's breaking mm -hmm. the norms. Same with the horrors of the 19th century. They didn't care. They flaunted it. They flaunted what they were doing. Do you think Elon Musk falls in that, in that category or is he like a limited hangout? To some extent. I mean, again, these guys are also... They're also interested in improving the establishment. I'm never interested in improving the establishment. Mm. I'm interested in forcing the oh sure. I'm interested in forcing the establishment to improve itself through competition and rebellion. But yeah, so I mean, they're interested in sort of taking over the establishment. Obviously, Trump is, and so is Elon Musk to some extent. But 
you know, they're they are radical revisionists of the establishment too. So I am mostly on their side when it comes to their battles with the existing order. Do you think that the ruling class or the establishment, well, first of all, are, are, are the establishment and the ruling class the same thing? Great question. Yeah, this is like, uh, I'm sort of betraying my leftist history here. You know, I, this is the way leftists think about it. <laughs> is there a thing called the ruling class? Although I've heard a lot of libertarians and paleocons also use that term. Yeah, there's a ruling class. Yeah. I mean, it's not like there's a formal membership and it's not like you can identify precisely who belongs to it. But, you know, sure. I would say that people who are in, certainly in politics, I would say that major capitalists, the big capitalists, those who are active politically instead of just making money and going home at night, but the ones like Gates and Buffett, et cetera, you know, who are injecting their, <laughs> their ideas into the public sphere. Um, I would say that I would say that the heads of the think tanks in Washington, D.C. are very much part of the ruling class. I mean, every war has pretty much been authorized and dreamed up by the Council on Foreign Relations in some way or another and other think tanks, right? I mean, we wouldn't have had, I mean, World War II would have been very different without the Council on Foreign Relations. And the post-war world would have been very different without the Council on Foreign Relations. They literally sat and secretly planned for the post-war order beginning in 1939. And when the war was won by the United States, they could implement their plan for the world on behalf of the United States and the State (laughs) Department. They worked directly with the State Department. So it was the thinkers, it was ideas and thinkers. They're a bunch of intellectuals, right? Sitting and looking at maps of the world. They determined history. Their ideas determined history. So yeah, the ruling class, as Gramsci said, as, well, so Gramsci, you know, says that the ruling class is the class that controls the culture, that has cultural hegemony. And so look to, yeah. look to see who has cultural hegemony, and that's pretty clear. It is the educated liberal elite who come from also, I would say, those who run the universities, the major universities. That is very much the ruling class. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's the easiest thing to look at. Who runs the schools? Whoever runs the schools in any society, that's the ruling class. Would anyone disagree <laughs> with me on that? right? The people who teach the children, that's the ruling class. So we know who that is. That's teachers unions and it's politicians and it's mostly the Democratic Party. Uh, Almost exclusively. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think about Ron DeSantis's pushback against the, against the uh, sort of woke school stuff down in Florida? Uh, Like to me, I don't necessarily think there was any problem to begin with. Like I think that they're fighting against a paper tiger or whatever it is. A phantom. A phantom. A scarecrow. Yeah. yeah, thank you. There you go. But on the other hand, I mean, it sure is good optics for pushing back against what we have just decided is the ruling class. Do you have an opinion on that? And, 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 and I should say also, as someone who, you know, is very, very sympathetic towards sort of the LGBTQ, trans, et cetera, maybe not the movement, but it itself like queerness itself. Like you, mm. you, you, I think have even described yourself as queer. <laughs> yeah, not anymore because it's been so misused. But um, I mean, my idea, sure. I will say this, yeah. many of my ideas are consistent and are inspired by queer theory of the 1980s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So that's true. But I wouldn't, I would no longer call myself queer because that puts me in a very bad category these days since so many terrible people are calling themselves queer. And it's so, I see a lot of very, <laughs> very straight people who don't even have unusual ideas calling themselves queer now. So I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so queer politics and queer theory, which came out of the 70s and 80s, they came out of the Stonewall Rebellion. They came out of gay liberation of the 1970s. That was one of the most liberationist movements and phenomena in American history, bar none. And I challenge anyone, anybody who's interested in personal freedom to challenge me on that. I challenge anyone to challenge me. I challenge anyone to dispute that. You know, we're talking about 
people who were kept in a closet, people who were locked up in prisons, people who were routinely rounded up by cops and paraded, you know, in city, before City Hall and had their names and pictures put in newspapers just for being gay, just for their sexual preference. And they were having, you know, this was consenting, of course, sex. And they, they fought the cops in the street and they won and they scared all the city councils in the country to stop this practice of locking up homosexuals. And it ushered mm -hmm. in this wonderful era of the 1970s of major sexual liberation, which affected all of us, not just gays and lesbians. Many of us, most of us, I think, benefited from that. We had an opening of the sexual culture of this country. We had an opening of what it meant to be man or a man or a woman. And people just experienced freedom for the first time in that way. And I think that is a profound, profound effect on American culture and on my own life. And I think the lives of almost all of us. So that was queer, and queer theory came out and said, hey, you know what? These categories of man and woman, they have changed over time. There's nothing determining them. You know, your genitals don't say, like, whether or not you're going to like football. It doesn't determine whether or not you like football, whether you have a penis or not, right? And they said, so you're not, your dick, mm -hmm. they said, is not your destiny. <laughs> your, your genitals do not <laughs> determine your destiny. That is not, you know, you can actually make choices in another direction. You can have a penis and like ballet. You can have, you can have a vagina and like football. And of course, there've been many people on both sides who've done just those things over the years. So they said, instead, they mm -hmm. said, we are free to choose our identification. Other people don't have to abide by that. Other people don't have to like agree that we are what we say we are. The original queer theorists and the queer activists of the 70s and 80s said simply, we are for freedom, freedom from the constraints of dominant traditional gender roles. That all got perverted in the 1990s and especially in the last 20 years by these assholes on college campuses who took that idea and then made it just the opposite. They started to say, my, my identity, that I, I was born with it and I can't do anything with it, and your identity is the same. You were born with that identity and it's going to determine your destiny. It means that you are a sexist yeah. and a misogynist and a transphobe and whatever it is they want to say because you were born in that body, James Gentleman. So it's the exact reversal of what the queer theorists had been saying before, which is that your body, your biology is not what determines who you become as a person. These All these trans activists, most of them, I would say, and most of these race activists say just the opposite, right? They say, if you're black, that means this about your life. And if you're white, it means that about your life. It's essentialist and it is totalitarian and it's authoritarian. So critical theory is almost the antithesis to queer theory. Is that right? Well, I mean, so again, original critical race theory, um, I think actually has some pretty valid insights in that it just sees in the law where race is not explicit. It sees some racial consequences and racial assumptions in many mm -hmm. laws. And that's just, that's just true. Yeah. You know, that's a really brilliant insight. I agree that's with true. that. Yeah. Right. But the essentialist critical theory kind of writ large, what James Lindsay uh, talks about, mm -hmm. that's less about the legal theory of, of critical race theory, which might even be unfortunately named at this point. Yeah. And gets into what you were just talking about. Or, or am I wrong? Okay, so I guess I haven't. Read yeah, again, the this is like theorists. this is like <laughs> this is another later perversion of an original theory that I think uh -huh. is actually good. So, critical race oh, theory, okay. as far as I know, Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell, I don't. They might have, but I don't think they said anything like white people will always be racist and white people are born racist, mm -hmm. which is the number one objection that people have had to critical race theory is that teaching. Now, that is totally what's being taught in the schools. I've seen the evidence myself that children are totally being yeah. taught to believe essentialism. 
that if they're born white, they're racist, and if they're born black, they're victims. That is totally being taught. I don't think that was being taught by the original critical race theorists, though, like Kimberly Crenshaw and Derek Bell. And in fact, okay. we're going to do a course with Sam Hoadley Brill on critical race theory soon to clear this up. Great. Yeah, I like him. He was in some of the other classes that you've been part of before, right? Yeah. Like and, uh, and he actually, a student? Yeah, and he actually works for Kimberly Crenshaw. So he knows that he knows that crowd. Oh, and, cool. and I'm not and I'm not a fan of Crenshaw, but I'm so it's gonna be a nice debate. But you know, I think I think the critics are wrong mm. about that particular part of it. Yeah. So what is it that got injected into queer theory, critical theory, et cetera, that morphed it into this then? A desire for power. Or is that something that we're gonna learn? A desire a desire for power and a desire to hurt others. So sadism and oh. and power grabbing. Okay. A lot of it's just simple sadism. If you are, you know, if you're like a 19 or 20-year-old kid at a college and you got nothing else going on, you got no power, you know, except that you are at a college, but you are you're trained to believe that you now have been given access to this secret knowledge about truth, that the world is full of racists, you mm-hmm. know, then you can become you can become virtuous immediately by calling other people racist. So it's okay. That's the motivation. Yeah, but it's so it's that gets into and it's so it it really appeals to people who like to hurt others, right? I mean, why else would you want to call someone a racist um, if it's not true? I mean, except to hurt them. And I just I know that's true. I mean, I know that's true with the current grooming hysteria on the right. It's a lot of sadism. They know damn well that these people are not pedophiles who they're talking about. They know goddamn well, but they do it. They say it anyway. They say it anyway because they just want to hurt people. Yeah, yeah. Huh. So that reads like religion to me. Yeah. Secret knowledge, scapegoats. Yep. And the problem I see with that movement also is that there's no there's no room for redemption, either on the left or the right. Maybe that maybe that gets us into a little bit the tweet that you put out the other day about the religious right mm-hmm. that you see rising up. What what is that that you're seeing? Oh, well, um the libs of TikTok is we found out that it's run by a woman who's an Orthodox Jew. And I think that a whole lot, I know that a whole lot of the libs of TikTok followers are, are religious. That's one major example. Um, I think the rise of this sort of popularity of Eastern Orthodox religions, Orthodox Christianity, you know, I've, I have many friends who have converted to that just in the last year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's not in itself a bad thing at all. In fact, I like a lot of that. I had Alexander Dugan on my show, and I respect a whole lot of what yeah. Dugan stands for, and I respect a lot of what people are doing there. So, you know, you and I think Buck both came back at me and said, actually, the religious right just wants to be left alone. And I think you're totally right about some people. Some people like Dugan, and some people like Buck, and some people who are, have adop- adopted Orthodox Christianity. But mm. clearly, but clearly... Well, and and but, orthodox- but orthodoxy, just real quick... yeah. Orthodoxy stands out among other Christian like brands in that it really does like it's a very isolationist clearly yeah not not quite like you know the Amish or or or, or whatever but it is it, I mean there's a reason that there's a reason that there's so few Orthodox when there's so many Catholics uh, those two religions are the same age sure. in history sure but one of them turned political and one of them didn't right so. But yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. No, no, that's a good point. And that's right. I mean, as I understand, I don't know Orthodox Christianity that well, but what I do know about it is it comports with what you're saying about it. I mean, they physically isolate themselves famously, right? And they're not, mm. they're not imperialists. Yeah. They're not even evangelical imperialists the way that most other Christians are. So yeah, I mean, if the religious right is that, then I have no problem. I'm, I'm happy. I'm very happy. But we know that there's a lot on the religious right who essentially form lynch mobs 
online, just like the left does whenever they mm-hmm. smell a racist or they think they smell a racist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, was, I recently experienced that, so I know this. I mean, many people threatened death to me uh, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> you know, wow. of course. Yeah. I mean, they, they were good Christians in their, in their profiles. You know, they said that they were Christians in their profiles and they're, they're calling to put me in a wood chipper for simply calling into question the age of consent laws, which have locked up a hundred million people, uh, mostly unjustly. So yeah, it's, it's a really bad phenomenon and it's really ugly because it's the worst thing in our society to be a pedophile. It's the worst thing. So to throw mm-hmm. that around it's worse than calling someone a murderer. It's really, it's really, really vicious and vile. Yeah, oh, it, it is, absolutely. Unless, unless it's been yeah. proven that you are a pedophile, unless it's proven that you have attacked a child, it's just, it's the worst thing, but they're throwing it around to, against everyone. And it's nuts. I mean, right. these, these, li- these liberals in the establishment, you know, who run the teachers' unions and Disney and all that stuff, I hate these people. Believe mm-hmm. me, I'm the one who's been leading the fight against them for years and years and years. <laughs> but yeah. they are not trying to fuck your kids. That's the one thing they're not doing. I don't think. I mean, they're trying to, they're grooming, they're grooming, they're grooming children, they're grooming children politically, right? Of course, they're grooming children politically. They're indoctrinating children, of course, absolutely. And pitchforks and torches for that, but, but they're not trying to fuck kids. And that's where this horrible conflation right. of what they're doing and pedophilia goes on. It's just, it's, it's disgusting. It's disgusting and juvenile. That's the thing. So the people who are in power love to distract us. Like, that's one of their MOs anyway. Mm-hmm. It feels like this is yet another distraction. I mean, yes, like you said, they are grooming them. They're just not grooming them for sex. Yes. Uh, they're grooming them for their ideological reasons. And I don't know. In, in a lot of ways, that's even more dangerous because it's so insidious. I mean, a kid can tell on a teacher who touches them. The kid who is just yeah. being brainwashed isn't. There's nothing to tell on. Well, on a social level, it's of course much more insidious because that's control of the whole society. You know, you control children's minds, you control society at large, mm-hmm. uh, and you can do anything. Yeah, and if it's, but yeah, individual acts of pedophilia will will be horrible for that child, but they will not necessarily affect politics or the culture at large. But but controlling the schools, mm-hmm. and this is where the libs of TikTok are right. You know. They are correct that these people do control the schools and therefore they control a lot of what our children think and they need to be attacked for that. It's just not for this particular thing. Um, and I also don't think they're trying to make kids trans either. That's the other claim that's being made. I mean, maybe a few, but it's, that's not really what's going on. Um, kids are being taught to be trans by the culture, not by their teachers. You think? That's My big it. problem with it is that the uh, student-teacher relationship, the student-teacher relationship has become too much of a peer relationship, in my opinion. Like, I mean, mm. when I was a kid, like, our teachers would have a picture of their spouse on their desk. But right. it wasn't like, it wasn't like part of their teaching that they would tell us about their family lives. Right. And that's what most of these teachers are whining about when they, when they whine about yeah. what they're not allowed to say in their classrooms. Yeah. Do you see that as problematic? Or Yeah, so I mean, the DeSantis bill in Florida, you know, banning discussion of sex and gender for, what is it, under third grade, third grade mm-hmm. and under... I mean, I want to ban discussion. I want to ban all discussions of everything by public school teachers. I want to ban public schools. I mean, this, this is like, <laughs> I, I would say that's a good yeah. start. It's a good start. You know, I don't want them to say anything to my child. I mean, yeah. I, my child and I were both subjected to that shit for 13 years, each of us. So, um, mm. no, it's an outrage. It's, it's an abomination that these mediocrities with political agendas have us trapped in a classroom all day long and can say anything they want to us all day long. 
ban that, ban the whole thing, and then choose your own schools where, where the teachers say what you want them to say to your, chi- to your children. That's the obvious answer. We have to create new institutions or find new yeah. institutions. So that brings me back to the question that I was going to ask you when I asked you to differentiate between the ruling class and the establishment. Do you think that the establishment or the ruling class is uh, redeemable or changeable? (laughs) Is it possible for the Elon Musk project to succeed or does it just need to be scrapped? Oh, sure. I mean, ruling classes can change constantly. They have to, to survive, right? Mm. Will they ever become uninterested in power? No. (laughs) <laughs> Will they ever become uninterested in maintaining yeah. or extending their power? No. These are people who were, their whole lives, they've wanted to control and manage other people. That's, I don't think that's going to change. Um, only a few of us are like that, but those, those people belong to the ruling class, right? They become the politicians, those who want to manage the world. So no, but I mean, it's all about leverage, competition, and pressure. So, you know, and cultural change, most importantly. So again, if, if there is broad, broad agreement vigorous support for free speech in the United States culturally, not just legally, then yes, Twitter will be like Elon Musk. The problem is the vast majority of liberals and half conservatives want censorship. Like most Americans want censorship for sure. They're all for that, right? They just disagree on what should be censored. But so that's again, law and policy and the conduct of corporations is downstream from culture. So we've got to we've got to change the minds of Americans about freedom of speech, and that's a very big project that has been abandoned for decades now. The ACLU no longer is for freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. You know, we're no liberals no longer talk about freedom of speech. They used to be the best at that. They used to be where where liberals were the best was in their defense of freedom of speech. They no yeah. longer talk about it. So I'm pretty despairing about the future of freedom of speech. I think Brandenburg, the great Supreme Court decision which I think is a fantastic freedom of speech regime. It makes all speech legal in this country except for the direct incitement of violence. I can publicly say anything except people should go get a gun and kill James Gentleman. And I think that's pretty damn good. I mean, Is that the fire in a crowded theater? No, no. This is the revision of the fire in, the, fire in a crowded theater. Oh. This is the Brandenburg okay. decision. Tell me about that case. I don't, I don't know about it. Well, Brandenburg uh, was, uh, I think it was a Nazi or Ku Klux Klan, one of those cases, you know, some, some, right, some fascist was p- appealing mm-hmm. to, was trying to, I think, have a rally or give a speech, and he was barred from doing that by the municipality. I believe this is the case. It doesn't matter. The point is the Supreme Court did rule that his speech was legal and defended, was protected by the First Amendment, and they said very clearly and have mm-hmm. said in many decisions that, yes, all speech is protected by the First Amendment except the direct incitement of violence, direct incitement of violence, which I think is as good as you can possibly get from a government. I'm very happy with that legal regime. I love, that's one of my favorite things about the Supreme Court. I think it's one of their best decisions ever. And it's wonderful. Now, I don't see how long that's going to last though, because the culture, both on the left and the right, doesn't like it. They don't like that regime. They want more restrictions, more censorship. What, why? I mean, what kind of person, what kind of person, (laughs) what kind of American who grew up in America, I mean, was educated in America. What, where, do you think the, where do you think the tide shifted to, to that sort of idea that free speech is no longer just sort of an inherent part of what it means to be an American? It, is, it, is, it depends on one's view of imminent threat. So if you believe that mm. we are threatened imminently by something terrible in politics, like a Hitler or some authoritarian movement, 
I'm sympathetic. I understand it. I'm not saying I would do this, but I'm, I'm very sympathetic. If we, if you and I were in Germany in 1932, 33, we might've been sympathetic to silencing Hitler knowing what we know now, right? Um, maybe not, but like, I at least understand it. If you're a Jew in Germany in 1932, you know, and you want to censor Hitler, I get it. I don't think it would have helped them. I think it probably would have backfired and made his rise even faster and even maybe even more violent. Yeah. But nonetheless, I get the impulse. So that's where it comes from. It comes from a feeling of vulnerability, right? That's when you want to stop people from okay. talking is when you feel vulnerable and weak and threatened. And so people on the left, they felt genuinely threatened by Donald Trump, the new Hitler. He was a fascist and Klan's leader and a racist and all the rest. And he was going to lock everybody up. And they really believed that. And so they, they had to censor his speech. On the right, you know, it's, it's mm. similar. They want to censor Disney. They want to censor teachers. They want to censor people talking about sex in any way. And, you know, Josh Hawley has two bills in Congress banning pornography, all of it, all pornography. You know, th- and he's a rising star in the MAGA <laughs> movement. So, you know, all sex, they want to censor, essentially, <clears throat> on, the, on the right. And so if we, have both of the, if we get both of their ways, we'll have nothing to do in this country. Nothing to say or do. Do you think that porn is too easily accessible? Yeah. <laughs> I do worry about it a little bit, I have to say. I mean, I'm of course like all for mm. freedom of everything, but like it's Yeah. I worry and again, I think it's cultural. I think once people younger people find out how good real sex is, I think they'll change their minds and, and behave differently and probably seek sex, real sex more than porn. But I I do I'm worried that I'm worried about the the sexual interest and desire of especially those people under 30 yeah. who've had Pornhub at their fingertips since they were born. And I don't know. I, I've heard reports that it's changing the way people behave in the bedroom. And I've heard reports about how it's the decline in sex. I mean, the decline in sex among young people is terrifying and terrible and very depressing. And porn mm-hmm. has something to do with that. I don't know if it's all of it, but yeah, it's not a great mix. But I think the answer is not in changing porn or in banning porn. The answer is in again, liberating people to do what they want to do sexually as long as it's consensual. So, yeah. Do you think there's a big plot? Like, I mean, COVID is an extreme example, but I mean, this is is a less extreme example. Uh, A big plot to diminish the role of interpersonal relationships in society, (laughs) or is it just the natural result of, of social media? Damn. I don't think it was a plot except possibly in the minds of some tech gurus in San Francisco might have thought this. No, I think again, it's people, it's, I think tech was giving people what they wanted. People do want privacy. They want to be able to sit in their house all by themselves and shout out at the world, you know, in anonymity. I mean, how awesome is that? You get to make fun of, you get to attack famous people, important people, powerful people, and they don't even know your name. They don't even know who you are. And you can do it from your, from your bedroom, right? You can do it from anywhere in your house. That's an awesome thing. And it just gets very seductive and very, it's very fun and people get stuck doing it, you know? But again, is that a bad thing if they're doing what they want to do? I mean, I have lots of friends who seem to just do nothing but tweet all day. I won't name anybody, but there have been many people on my podcast, you know, good friends of mine who have, who have regular jobs. They're like professors or journalists, but they'll tweet like 100 or 200 times a day. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that works. But, you know, that's what they're into. I don't get it either. I'm in in these Mises Caucus and other, like, Discord chats. And I have no, like, just during the day, I mean, it's just hundreds and hundreds of chats, like, a minute. Just keeps going and going and going. And I don't understand what these guys are doing. Yeah, I know. Mostly guys. There's some girls. 
Yeah, the, the chats. Contrary to popular belief, there are there are female Mises Caucus people. Uh, but yeah, group chats. I I don't I can't I can't follow them. I, I know groups. This whole phenomenon of group chats. I know again, people under forty um, seem to be doing this a lot, and I I didn't know about this until recently. And it takes an enormous amount of time, and uh, an enormous yeah. amount of time. I don't I don't understand how things things are getting done in this society. At least by our class of people. Yeah. Maybe nothing is getting done. Maybe all we're doing is tweeting and, and texting. So I recently, just to get a little bit personal, I guess, I recently gave up porn because it really was encroaching in my life. And that's, you know, it became almost compulsive for me. Mm. But now it's kind of like, and so I was, I was, even in my day job, I was like not performing adequately at all. But that has kind of been replaced by Discord now. Yeah. <laughs> like, every time, every time I want to take a break from work, I open up Discord, and like there I am for an hour, and it just goes like it, it just flies by. You don't even know that it's an hour. It wow. might even be two. I have no idea. I don't. It's not like I've wow. got a stopwatch on. So yeah, I mean these things are all. I mean they just kind of suck our attention, and you know I mean I like the idea of being productive. I don't like you and heavily influenced by you. I don't see the inherent value in work, but. uh I do kind of see the inherent value in feeling satisfied with um, something that I've produced. And so, and hell, maybe that, maybe that is, has something to do with the decline in, so, in self-esteem as well. Like, I mean, we don't feel productive. We don't feel like we've got the satisfaction of uh, pr- having produ- produced something, which I think is the, I think having produced something is what, people like the Puritan work ethic means when it says the value of a hard day's work or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. at least if it's not corrupted by just valorizing work for no reason for work's sake. Right. I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I just, I just completely yeah. brain vomited. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, my first thought is I've been thinking a lot about Gen X, my generation. And <clears throat> when DMX died, you know, when DMX was, you know, one of the top rappers of the, of Gen X, I was, I was watching, I was, of course, revisit. I've been a DMX fan forever, but I, I sort of went back and watched a lot of his videos and listened to a lot of his songs. And before he died, I mean, I th- even though I was a huge fan, I thought of DMX as sort of a knucklehead, essentially. Like he he wrote really good beats and had some good some good verses, but like generally, I thought he was just like a big masculine, like woo woo kind of rapper who wasn't really saying anything or doing much. <laughs> and it's not true at all. Like he worked his fucking ass off DMX did and if you listen to his lyrics it's like he's telling stories with subplots and he's rhyming constantly so he's he's just working all the way through his songs really hard and he's rapping fast and he's rapping loud and he's rapping clearly that's really hard work and he was incredibly prolific he put out album after album and hit after hit and he toured and you know he was a hard fucking worker and you know rappers today <laughs> in their teens and 20s <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is what they're known for. This is their, very, you know, they mumble, yeah. right? And they don't speak clearly. And they, they, like, it's literally, they rap slowly. It's literally called mumble rap. They rap slowly. And also, they use the same fucking beats. Talk about laziness. They use the same beats mm. for every song, which I think is just an abomination. <laughs> so, well, and you're, and you're not, you're not just an old man yelling in a cloud. Like, I mean, this is, this is real. The decline in, mm-hmm. the decline in, 
uh, media quality. I mean, you just have to listen to the Perfume Nationalist. I mean, everybody, everybody like yes. is required to join Jack's Patreon yes. and listen to every ep- episode of the Perfume Nationalist mm-hmm. to hear all about this. I mean, yes. the decline in media quality is real. It's tangible. You can feel it. There's a reason that like music today sounds pretty much identical to music 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's not normal. Like right. the 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 genres morph. They tend to they tend to evolve, and that's not happening right now. Right. Yeah, I mean, so you can go through the history. You know, 1950s, rock and roll was born. 1960s, rhythm and blues mm-hmm. and soul music were born. 1970s, disco was born. People can laugh at that, but disco was the basis for hip-hop. 1980s, 1970s and 80s, hip-hop was born, right? These huge, you know, revolutionary genres that became massively popular and changed the music scene and changed the way we hear the world. Now what do we have? What's the new... What's the new musical innovation now of the last 10 or 20 years? I can't think of anything. I mean, that's, that's actually positive. This is going to be horribly racist. And I don't, I don't mean this derogatorily, but do you think that, or not derogatorily, but like, do you think that this is a trade-off of black culture being assimilated into the American like standard culture. I mean, my favorite, my very favorite chapter on in Renegade History was the one where you contrasted uh, Martin Luther King with like this pimp preacher who was also a civil rights leader, but Mm -hmm. was a very renegade civil rights leader. I can't remember the guy's name. Prophet Jones. But like he had all kinds of, yeah, all kinds of women, big cars, uh, dressed like a pimp. But was he, wasn't he a minister too though? Well, there was two of them. There was Sweet Sweet Daddy Grace was heterosexual. um, And then there was Prophet Jones who was very gay, but they both had huge empires. They were much more famous than King was in the early 50s. And yeah, they had they had fancy cars, they had white wow. chauffeurs, they had lots of men or women, they had huge mansions, they sat on thrones that were encrusted in jewels, they wore mink coats, the whole nine yards. They were amazing. Um, and King and his and the civil rights leadership in the 50s came along and said, We can't do this anymore. This is non-respectable. This will yeah. white people will not not allow us to be citizens. Yeah. They will not respect us. We must change our act, we must clean up our business. And that's what they did. So they they basically discredited those guys and tossed them out of pu- the public sphere. And then King and his and his business suits and all of his other civil rights leaders who were super respectable and good Christians and good Americans replaced them as <laughs> as the leading black people in this country, right? The leading blacks. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's that. There's there's those guys. Martin Luther King obviously won yeah. that pseudo conflict. The mainstreaming of queer culture uh, means that queer people are not the counterculture so they're not shaping the future of culture jewish people for uh, also who have historically been the sh- uh, part of the counterculture and shaping of the future of culture do you think that the mainstreaming of these sort of subcultures have contributed to this sort of lack of cultural progression i've been thinking about this so black culture so you know anybody who knows me knows that i've my entire life, I've been a huge admirer of black culture since I was a kid um, mm. until now, <laughs> like until recent years. I, yeah, there's very little coming out of black culture that I, that I like. Um, and we talked about hip hop, you know, R&B has been similar. Like all the songs sound the same. There's hardly anybody who can really sing anymore. Black sort of, you know, cinema has been totally taken over and co-opted by Hollywood, right? By like, jamming every black face they can into every movie they make, every TV show, which just sort of dilutes the whole thing. All black culture must be political in a particular BLM woke way, which also makes for shitty art, you know, with very mm-hmm. with a few exceptions. 
so it's a it's a really grim time for what's called the culture, right? Um, and I I I is this because of the assimilation of the culture into the mainstream? No, I actually think, and this is going to be uh, controversial for some. I actually think the culture of poverty thesis that was made by a lot of conservatives in their explanation of poverty in that the culture is what made black people poor more than any structural impediments. I think there's a lot to that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a whole lot to that. It's very clear that street culture, and I'm talking about working class and poor black people. I'm not talking about middle class and upper class black people who live sure. in, you know, I'm talking about people who live in Compton. Look at what they say in their, in their art. It is nihilistic. It is, you know, it is all about violence and sex and drugs and, and being a very bad person being a very, very bad person. So that, that is true. That sort of gangster mythological lifestyle is what is still valorized. Well, if you valorize that lifestyle and you mm. really do it in your real life, you're obviously going to go nowhere except maybe uh, to prison or to a cemetery. And it certainly is not going to produce anything of value in your community. So, I mean, this is a strange thing for Thad Russell to be saying, but I think the culture of poverty is a real thing. and not to mention sort of what John McWhorter talks about a lot, which is that there is, there is sort of a prejudice against successful black people. And there is a, especially a prejudice yeah. against black people who get educated in white institutions, which, you know, might be somewhat justified, but, you know, so it's like there is this culture and there's sort of this honor of the hood, the honor culture in the hood where you don't leave the hood or you come back to the hood. It's like, no, fuck the hood. Get the fuck out as soon as you can, which is what intelligent people do. So I think that culture of poverty has just made the mass of African-Americans in this country poor. And they've remained poor for centuries now. And I think it's just that exhausts the culture. When you're poor, it's really hard to produce good stuff. And I I guess, I don't know. It just, I think that that culture of poverty is sort of like imploding in on itself. It's just become so awful and nihilistic. It's just, it's not adding up to anything. I don't know. There's other reasons for it, but I do think, I do think the culture of poverty is a big part of it. Sure. Damn. Well, that's a, that's a black pill, so to speak. How do cultures change? I mean, we've we, we've kind of talked about it, but like, how do? What's the solution for for black people? Oh, white savior. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to make this really about race. But I mean, if you have ideas, maybe someone will hear it. Yeah. Well, black people should listen to what I say and do what I tell them. And that's, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the main lesson we want to take from here. Yeah. Well, and that's that's kind of one of your thes- that's one of your theses too is that the the counterculture has trade-offs. Like I mean there's mm-hmm. if you're going to be countercultural, th- then you're not going to you're not going to be rich most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless of course you well, make it as a as an artist or an athlete yeah, or whatever. Right. How do we change culture? You know, we just do what we're doing. You know, what you and I are doing right now is an attempt to change the culture, right? Uh, every podcast Every piece of writing, every tweet is intended to change the culture. And so you just keep doing that until something catches on. Or you find allies who think similarly about you and you can join together and consolidate your forces and amplify your voice and change the culture even more readily. And that's, I mean, there's no other way. And there's no explanation for it because it's alchemy. It's magic. We don't know. We can't explain it. Why culture changes. Why do people change their minds suddenly and everybody wants a smartphone in their pocket. Like, why did, was that mm-hmm. predetermined? I don't know. Why did it happen when it happened? 
Um, is it because Steve Jobs invented this thing or is it because Americans want, people wanted that thing? I think it's because people wanted that thing in their pocket. So we just do it. You just do what you're doing and there's nothing else you can do. I mean, if we could predict what changes culture, right? <laughs> that would make for a very different world. Yeah. If we knew what changed culture, right, we'd all be doing it. So you mentioned earlier that that Trump and Bernie Sanders are sort of the uh, the renegade culture-shaping politicians. Do you think that Trump was in the right place at the right time? Or like if, say, Ron Paul had run for president in 2016 and not mm -hmm. 2012, mm -hmm. do you think that he would have been as successful as Trump? Or did Trump have some other secret sauce that Ron Paul lacked? Uh, the reason that Donald Trump won is because he was a TV star. Mm. Plain and simple. Okay. People have grossly underestimated huh. that. He was a TV star. That means he was known and popular among most American people. The elites who run the country, the ruling class, they don't watch TV. So they were unaware of this. This is why Donald Trump was name-checked in hundreds of rap songs before he was president. He was a heroic yeah. figure among working-class Black people, among people who listen to hip-hop. He was celebrated in those rap songs. He wasn't made fun of. And um, same is true for like working-class white people. People watch The Apprentice. It wasn't at the top show for years and years and years. So we're talking about tens of millions mm -hmm. of people who knew him and liked him. And I know for sure that's where he got most of his votes from. And that's why he would have beaten Ron Paul. Ron Paul developed a huge social movement that voted for him, but it was never big enough to get the majority of American people. The only way to get the majority of American people to do anything is to get yourself on TV. Until now. I mean, now it's changing. But television, until very recently, yeah. television is what, is what made things go. If you could control television or be a presence on television, then you could win the presidency. But Ron Paul never had that. He was never a pop star. He was always so earnest and so policy-driven and, and no personality was shown. And like you, So just the power of his ideas turned on maybe 10% of the electorate, you know, which is an amazing phenomenon, amazing feat. But you got to have that, that extra juice in pop culture to really get over. Obama was that way too. I mean, Obama won because he was pop culture friendly in a bunch of ways. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I mean, he's going to be running as a libertarian, but do you think Dave Smith could make a dent, not win the presidency as a third-party candidate? But I mean, given his, given his media savviness, his frequent appearances on, on TV, and also on shows like Joe Rogan and, and Tim Pool, I mean, do you think that he would do well? Dave is going to wreck shit. Dave is going to fuck some people up. It's going to be amazing. Dave is going to make a major dent, multiple Damn. dents, multiple dents. Because Dave is Ron Paul on steroids. Dave is Ron yeah. Paul, but with a personality. He's funny. He's young. He's hip. He's media savvy. Very media savvy. Um, and he's a brilliant orator, brilliant debater. Uh, he's, he's as good as Ron Paul in those ways, but he has all these other qualities. And he's a really good guy, too. He's actually a good person. Mm -hmm. So I, I think... He's like the American Zelensky. I would be shocked if he doesn't break the record for libertarian votes in 2024. I mm -hmm. think that's a, that's a shoe-in. So we're talking, you know, Gary Johnson got like a million or something like that. I, I think Dave's going to break that by far. I think he might get two million. And if you get two million, then you're really a serious force in this country. If you get two million people to yeah. vote for you, which is super possible, especially if he's going against, you know, Trump and Kamala Harris or whatever it is. I mean... Good Lord, I could see a lot of people voting for Dave, but it doesn't matter how many people vote for him. 
He's going to be doing a media blitz like no one's ever seen. And a lot of these ideas will get into the heads of people who have never heard them before. People who were unaffected by the Ron Paul revolution will definitely be affected by the Dave Smith revolution. That's the most convincing. I'm, I'm wearing my Dave Smith t-shirt. I didn't, I didn't think we were going to be talking about him. So like, it's just weird. You know, I didn't, I didn't wear the t-shirt on purpose yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, that's the most convincing argument in favor of supporting Dave that I've heard oh, yeah. for, for libertarian. There, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how into libertarian internal conflicts you are, but uh, like, there's this. There's this big. I mean, the biggest. The biggest conflict in libertarianism right now is between the uh, like the paleo strategy, where you know you, jo- you we need to join the Republicans because you know we're at an existential crisis right mm-hmm. now, and you know the LP is not going to win power, and so we need to abandon it and just join forces with our natural allies on one hand, and then there's the uh, no, mm-hmm. we're an ideological movement. We can't compromise on that idea ideology, the the principles, which you know I I don't really like the principles talk so much, but I mean it is a it is a philosophy that happens to also have a political party, which was probably a mistake in the first place. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, what you just said, that makes me optimistic for sort of the direction that I'm going now. Because I have, I've, I've kind of decided that the LP is where my friends are and hmm. hopefully I'm not just spinning my tires by sort of hanging out with them. Although, you know, when I did rejoin the LP, you yelled at me, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I think you, 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 joking, you jokingly told me I was fired. Yeah, the Libertarian Party, I don't, I don't really care one way or the other about it. I don't think it's a great way to spend your time if you want to change the world. Although if you're Dave Smith and the Mises Caucus and you could take over that party, that seems like it's worth doing because it gives you a bigger platform and gives you a vehicle to get your message out. But party politics in general, electoral politics, no, that's not where an anarchist should be. Hello, it seems obvious to me. An anarchist needs to be outside the system. Yeah, okay. So that's, and that's, that's your agorist sort of yeah. sympathies coming through as well. I, would yeah. you, do you, I mean, do you describe yourself as, as an agorist at this point? I mean, I'm pro-agorist. I don't, I don't really do anything that's agorism, but I'm, yeah. I'm certainly pro-agorist, yes. Yeah, I believe in counter-institutions, counter-economics, people making their own stuff, selling their own stuff in their own ways. Outside of the purview of governments and corporations, for sure. I mean, that's the way of the future. That's mm-hmm. what's happening without us even saying anything about it. You know, cryptocurrency is going to be the... Yeah the the golden road to that future where we all do our own thing economically. We're independent and autonomous economically, which is a, a beautiful, beautiful idea. I mean, if when that comes about, that's yeah. the real, real revolution. When everybody is autonomous economically, that is the real ev- revolution. There's a lot of people who worry that cryptocurrency is a Trojan horse that, uh, and that Satoshi Nakamoto, who's, you know, remains anonymous, there's theories as to who he might be or they, but a, a lot, a lot of sort of the conspiracy theorists, especially, think that it's actually cryptocurrencies were developed by governments in order to create something that's trackable, traceable, censorable, and also not subject to inflation like their like their sort of currencies that were in place. And they're not smart enough. Seem to be getting the job done up until recently. Not smart enough. CIA is definitely not smart enough for that. No, I mean, come on, look. Look at the establishment, the ruling class, the political class, whatever you want to call it. The you know, the, and the, the heads of these agencies, and who would do that? Nah. Tell me who the who who you have seen in on Capitol Hill who is intelligent enough to pull that off to invent cryptocurrency as a preemptive means of social control. 
<laughs> that that's that's some five D chess right there. Well, and I don't see anybody in government who has that ability. It's certainly not the politicians, but the deep state. I mean, they've got they've got experts, right? Who well, so if you're a really smart tech guy or a really smart anything guy, are you going to go into are you going to go into politics? Or are you going to go into tech? <laughs> no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Well, I'm certainly not going to go into bureaucracy. If I'm going to go into politics, well, it will have some some reason behind where, it. Where's the money? I mean, you make you can make ten times more money staying in the private sector. So that's why we get such mediocrities in government. That's exactly why it doesn't pay as well. Yeah, it doesn't pay as well. So you only man. So, you, so the only people you who are do steering it, me in directions. The only people who do government who do the only people that do it. Go ahead. Are true believers, right? So you get the worst of the worst. You get people who are mediocre oh. intellectually, and they're religious zealots who want to control us. That's who you get in politics. The worst people. Kam- they're all Kamala Harris. They're all some version of Kamala Harris. Some untalented uh, control freak. That's exactly what they all are, of course. Mm. <laughs> so, Andrew, my partner, my long-suffering partner, who uh, you know and love, mm-hmm. uh, he was making fun of me for the podcasts I listen to and, you know, oh, you just listen to conspiracy theorists or whatever. And I was like, hey, Thad's not a conspiracy theorist. And he goes, yeah, ask Thad what he thinks about the moon landing. We're sitting at dinner. Like, this was dinner conversation. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so from the table, I text you, hey, what do you think of the moon landing? And your response, and I quote, was, everybody knows the moon landing was staged. <laughs> which, <laughs> which uh, as usual, I was proven wrong in an argument with Andrew well, because he's right about everything and I'm wrong about everything. I was mostly joking. I was mostly joking. What did you mean by that? I was, okay, I was mostly joking. I, my feeling on the, well... Okay. Yes. My feeling on the moon landing is, is very similar to my feeling on 9-11. I, okay. so, okay. So I have not seen evidence in either case to suggest that the basic narrative about what happened and why it happened is false. So far, mm-hmm. I have not seen any evidence to disprove what I believe was an act of aggression by those 19 militants working for Al-Qaeda with the help of the Saudi government. Right. That's who was behind it. That's who did it. That's who pulled it off. I have not seen any evidence really that's compelling um, me to believe that the U.S. government had anything to do with it. And the same goes with the moon landing. I simply have seen no evidence to suggest that it was faked. Okay, here's the interesting thing, though. That's not interesting. The interesting thing is the politics of those moments, of those events, the politics, the context of those events. What was going on in politics at the time those things happened, at the time of the moon landing mm-hmm. and the time of 9-11, what was happening in both cases, everything's foreign policy, James. Everything is always foreign policy. At the time of the mm-hmm. moon landing, the United States was high Cold War, right? This was like peak Cold War. They're competing with the Soviets. And everyone knows the moon landing was John F. Kennedy's attempt to upstage the Ruskies, the Soviets, who had put a man in space before the United States did, Yuri Gagarin, who just, I think he died recently. The Soviets were kind of like, they were competing pretty readily with the United States in the, in the space race. And can, the moon landing, you know, it bore no scientific fruit whatsoever. We got almost nothing out of that, except I think Tang, this shitty breakfast drink. <laughs> so, but it was a way to put literally the flag on the moon, the American flag in space to, to establish that this is us and we conquered it first against the Soviet Union to show that the U.S. was more powerful, more advanced more progressive, smarter, right? More capable than the Soviets. 
It was all part of that Soviet-U.S. rivalry and competition back in the 1960s and 70s. The 9-11, what was happening in the world before 9-11? Well, the neocons were, and their allies like Joe Biden, were trying to figure out how to maintain the United States as the hegemonic power after the Cold War. What do we do now that we no longer have this boogeyman to justify our massive military and all those bases around the world? And as everyone know, most people know, you know, neocons wrote this, this little document, the uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses Project for a New American Century, in which they, they called for a new, they said that they wanted a new Pearl Harbor to justify massive military spending. So in both cases, you know, the moon landing and 9-11 were the best possible things to happen to the foreign policy establishment. In both cases, the politics of it were fantastic <clears throat> for the foreign policy establishment, for the Bush administration, for the neocons, for the establishment generally who wanted the United States to maintain its hegemony globally. So if they didn't do it, they caught, caught a break with those things happening. If they did do it, I understand why. I just haven't seen the evidence for them doing it, for faking the moon landing or staging 9-11. Cool. I think, uh, so for the record, this is my feeling on the moon landing. I think that the moon landing happened, but I don't think that they live streamed it. I have a feeling that the, that the soundstage thing oh. was like pre-recorded. And then, you know, I don't know that the technology existed back then. I mean, cameras were massive. Uh, they didn't mm -hmm. have the satellite link ups and, and that kind of thing. So that's my feeling. I, I don't, I don't want to get too, too deep into it because you just mentioned Pearl Harbor, which brings me to, uh, you know, uh, to kind of closing out the, closing out the, the show, I guess I'd love to, I'd love to get some uh, insider info on your forthcoming book. That's been forthcoming for a few years now. <laughs> uh, but it sounds like you're putting the finishing touches on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I got, about a few months ago, I was telling people I have 20 pages to write. I still have 20 pages to write because the last few months have been very busy for me <laughs> um, dealing with Renegade University and separating all that stuff. But yes, I'm back at it and I'm writing. I'm finishing the book with the rise of China and the rise of Trump. So it's a history of U.S. It's a history of mm -hmm. America in the world. And it's, so it's both about American foreign policy and it's about American popular culture in other countries all over the world, which has been extremely influential <clears throat> in many mostly good ways across the world since the turn of the 20th century. So yeah, it's uh, two major theses. One is that American military interventions has always ended up being bad for American people, blowback. And the other part is that American popular culture, conversely, has always been good for the American people, but also good for people across the world who wanted to live more freely. Because jazz <clears throat> and rock and roll and blue jeans and tattoos and, and all the rest of it has meant individual freedom for people in places like communist China and Muslim Iran and Saudi Arabia and the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. So I trace the history of all those countries' experiences with American pop culture. And I show that in all those countries, there were huge portions of the civilian population who just loved Louis Armstrong or loved Elvis Presley or loved James Dean much more than they did the commissars and the heads of state in those countries. And they loved American culture and rock and roll and freedom much more than they did communism, fascism, and Islamism. That's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, I, well, so I can't, read, I can't wait to read it. Me too. <laughs> Where can people get your take on, on World War II? Oh, well, I have a course coming up, World War II, The Great Blowback. 
Go to patreon.com slash unregistered. I'll be teaching that in June. Four parts. I've taught it before. This is like my core course right now. People love it. It is a complete, let's talk about revisionist history. This is a complete revision of World War II history in which I argue, I present the argument, which has been made by several scholars by now in Europe, not so much in the United States, the argument that the U.S. participation in the war caused most of the deaths of the war and guaranteed the realization of the Holocaust. Didn't cause the Holocaust, mm-hmm. but it guaranteed that the Holocaust would happen. And that's a, that's a very complicated argument I will lay out in the course and in my book. There's a pretty truncated version of it on, uh, I think it was Isaac Morehouse's show, right? Yeah. Yeah, Isaac's show. Yeah, I'd lay okay, out. Cool. Like, I'm gonna link. I'm gonna link to. I, I've listened to that episode probably four or five times. Oh, wow. um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna link to that. Okay. Because it's a really good preview, and I think it'll sell your course too, which is beneficial for you. But it's also beneficial to the people who are going to be buying it because it's a really interesting thesis. That you you said that it's it's becoming more and more mainstream, uh, at least in Europe, right? Yeah, that's where I got a lot of my information was from historians in especially Germany and Britain who have been writing this revisionist history of World War II for about two decades now. We got mm-hmm. access to the secrets, to the, um, the Gestapo's archives in the 1990s. Th- those archives were opened up. And so we learned a whole lot about what the Gestapo oh, was doing, the Nazi leadership was doing. And we found out that what some people had suspected but didn't know until then was that the final solution, the genocide of Jews, was not, was not what Hitler wanted at all until the United States entered the war. He did not want to kill the Jews at all. He wanted to hold them as hostages to get, to get what he wanted, which was control of Poland and Western Russia. He did not want to kill the Jews until he was forced to when the United States intervened and he knew that he was going to lose the war and he knew he was going to die. So then he, that's when he finally gave up and started to exterminate them. But he had been warning the West Damn. for years and years and years, for almost 10 years, well, six years, he had been warning the West, if you, enter the, if you intervene against us, in our campaigns in Poland and Russia, we will kill them. We won't kill, but we will give them to you right now. If you want, he offered to send the Jews in Germany to America, Britain, France, anybody would have them over and over. Every year he said, yeah, please take them. take them. Please take these Jews that you love so much. And if you don't take them and you intervene against us, we will kill them. And the West kept saying, fuck you, no. And the United States repeatedly refused to take any Jewish refugees at all, as did the UK, as did France, as did the entire world. They kept those people trapped in Nazi regime territory. They kept them trapped, trapped in the Third Reich under Hitler's thumb. And then when they had no use for them, when the Third Reich had no use for the Jews, when the, when the war was on and they couldn't do anything anymore, that's when they killed them. The very first extermination camp was in Chelmno in Poland. They, the first Jews who were killed in an extermination camp were killed the day after Pearl Harbor, after the declaration of war. One day after, that's when the first, Jesus. that's when it began. That's when the Holocaust began. So its connection... The causation, the causal link between U.S. participation, U.S. involvement, U.S. entry, and the Holocaust is right there. It's right there. And it's much, much, there's much yeah. more to that story, too. And there's tons of evidence to, to, to prove this. And several historians in Germany and Britain have made this argument, not just me. You just said a thing that's going to get taken out of context if it ever, you know, rises to more than a few hundred people listening to this. You said that Hitler was forced to do it by the U.S. entry into it. Maybe a better way to put that was like he felt compelled to or was uh, ideologically driven to or something like that. Is that more accurate, do you think? Well, okay, sure. I mean, he he basically, I mean, he said to them, you know, if you do this, I will do that. And they did this and he did okay, that. Good. 
And yeah, it, okay. And, I don't. I just, I just don't want to. I don't want to get either one of us no, in trouble. I mean, with also, <laughs> like he knew he knew that he was going to die. I mean, he knew. That, yeah. He knew that once the United States was in the war fully, which it was after Pearl Harbor, that he was essentially he had to die. He was going to die. There was that was a yeah. war to the finish at that point, and there was no way the German the Germany could win that war. So, um, yeah, he had no reason to keep them alive anymore. Cool. Yeah. All right, Thad. Let's start wrapping it up. I guess first of all, let me just. Say hi to my mom who said hi to me in the chat. <laughs> hi, mom. Also, Kionda to Carlos, who we both love. And then Jose Galison, who are you? Do you know Jose? Sure. I was on Jose's show. Love Jose. Oh, were you? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So he was there too. And he says hi. I saw. And he's pretty great. Hey, guys. Another agorist. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's about it. So we're going to we're gonna link to your Patreon. Do you want to link to anything else, Twitter? Nope. That's it. Let's go to Patreon. All right, good. Yep. Everybody join Thad's Patreon. Join Jack's Patreon as well because we talked about that earlier and join my whatever it is that people pay for when I <laughs> ask for money. Fed, thank you so much. It was great Thanks, catching James. up with you. It's been a while since we talked. You've been so busy this month that uh, that even my texts were going unanswered and I felt very neglected. Sorry. So I'm thank you for an hour and a half of your time. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> I love you, man. You are my best friend and uh, I'm happy to have gotten to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Oh, I love you too, James, so much. Have a good one. Thank you, man. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for checking out this episode of Blackbird. If you like what you heard today, be sure you're subscribed on your podcatcher of choice. You can find me anywhere by searching Blackbird with James Gentleman. Follow me on Twitter at JamesLJ. My DMs are always open, so if you have feedback, ideas, or have something interesting to say and would like to appear on Blackbird, just drop me a line there. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all my interviews, plus plenty of bonus content, head over to blackbirdpodcast.com. Toss me $7 a month or $70 a year, and I'll get you all set up. You can also find me on Odyssey, where I'm posting the video of my interviews. Just search for Blackbird there or click the link in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't already, please leave me a rating and a review over at iTunes. It really helps the show. Thanks again for listening to Blackbird, and until next time, live free. 